0: You're listening to a
1: Wheels on the Ground production.
0: Hey there, Disability After Dark listeners. Andrew here. I want to tell you all about a really awesome deal that I got from my friends and new sponsors, Adam and Eve, the number one adult toy superstore. They reached out to me and they said, Andrew, we love Disability After Dark. We love your show. We love what you're doing. And we were wondering if you want to run some ads for us. And I was like, fuck yes, I do. But what are my awesome listeners going to get if I run ads for you? What are they going to get out of this? And they came back with a really fantastic deal that I want to share with you right now. I hope you're getting comfy, cozy, and crippled because this deal is pretty great. If you go to AdamEve.com, you can pick out almost any item in the store, almost any one item in the store, for 50% off. That means you can get one dildo, one lube, and one thing of lingerie, if you want, for 50% off. And then, once you get that one item for half price, they throw in even more free stuff. Let me tell you all about it. Okay, so you got your one item at half price in your bag, and you're ready to go, but guess what? This offer also includes ten free items on top of that, that other item. So you get one free item for penis havers, one free item for vulva havers, one free item for couples, and then you also get six Free movies from the AdamEve.com website. You can get your favorite porn or an educational film. I love free movies. They're so awesome. This is such a great deal. And then, on top of that, you also get free shipping. What could be better? This is such a great offer. So, to redeem this great offer, what you're going to do is you're going to go to AdamEve.com. You're going to go to checkout, and you're going to type in dark Pod. I am so excited to tell you about all the new things coming up with this podcast, and thank you so much for listening. But the thing I want to quickly tell you about today is you've heard us talk on the HandyCast, the special episodes I do with my sister Heather, about our brand Handy. You've heard us talk about our new book, The Handy Book of Love, Lust, and Disability. Well, guess what? It is available for pre order right now on our website, and I am so excited about this book because it is a book that puts together 50 amazing disabled and chronically ill contributors to talk to us about sex. But the book just doesn't talk about sex, it talks about how sex and disability feels. So we curated 50 important responses from the disabled community worldwide to write a book that was about not only sex and disability, but the emotions around sex and disability, and we ask contributors to answer questions like what was the sexiest thing that ever happened to you around your disability? What was the worst sex you've ever had as a disabled person? Tell us about how chronic pain and disability impact your sex life. Tell us about sex work and disability. So many things popped up in this book. It was such an, it's such an important collection and it's one that I needed when I was coming out as queer, coming out as disabled coming at us, all these things. I needed this book and these stories to feel like I wasn't alone. So I want to give you listeners the opportunity to pre-order the book right now and tell you a little bit more about the book. So the book is not only just a book, but the book is actually a donation towards our sex toys. So if you pre-order the book at thatshandy.co and don't worry, I'll put a link in the show notes. If you pre-order the book Right now, every dollar from any book sales will go towards the creation of the first sex toy for and by disabled people. How fucking cool is that? It's really, really awesome, and we're super excited. And if you pre order the book, you will have it in three accessible options hardcover, ebook, and audiobook. So if you want to hear more of my dulcet tones serenading, you, my friend Katie Venables and I narrate the book. So you can hear me do a bunch of chapters, and then you can hear her do a bunch of chapters. And we're both disabled individuals, so I think it's a really cool project. So I'd love for you to pick up a copy. By picking up a copy of this book, you're saying that sex and disability matters, and you're saying it's an important conversation, and you're hoping to fund the first sex toy ever for and by disabled people. So pick up your book of The Handy Book of Love, Lust, and Disability, available right now at thatshandy.co. Content warning. The language, content, and discussion found within this episode of Disability After Dark will be explicit. Listener discretion advised. Hello, hello, friends. Welcome to the show, friends. Thank you so much for clicking on this brand new episode of Disability After Dark, the podcast shining a bright light on disability stories. I'm, of course, your disabled daddy. You once knew me as Andrew Gerza, but I have a little bit of an announcement. I've decided to change my professional name to Drew Gerza. So now, this is Disability After Dark with Drew Gerza, and I am your disabled daddy. So, as usual, get comfy, cozy, and crippled, and let's get this show started. Just a quick reminder that if you want to support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash disabilityafterdark and pledge $1 a month or $5 a month or more to keep the show going and keep a bright light shining on, this, on these important conversations and these important stories. So if you want to do that, you can go to patreon.com slash disabilityafterdark. When you pledge, you'll get the show one day early, and you'll get a weird, sexy, awkward setup for me. What could be better than that? So, if you're able to pledge, I really appreciate it. And if you also want to leave a review on the iTunes page, you can do that. Thank you for listening, and now let's get started. Oh my goodness, where do I even begin with my excitement for today's episode? I am, it is a big one. It is one that I never, ever in a million years thought would happen, and it came together over the power of Twitter and social media, and me being a little bit persistent, but it came together, and I cannot wait to share it with you. Cannot wait. Let me tell you a little bit of what's happening today and why I'm so excited. As you might have seen from the intro of today, I sit down with really a disability rights icon, Judy Human. If you've been what if you watched the Netflix movie *Crip Camp*, you know who Judy Human is. Um, she is a disability rights pioneer. She's so amazing. If you're a disabled person, you know who Judy Human is, and she is somebody that I've admired and followed her work for a very long time. And I... She's just somebody that I'm... I'm even speechless doing the intro because I love her so much. She's just somebody that I really look look up to in the disability rights movement and let me tell you a little bit more about her. Judy Heumann is a lifelong advocate for the rights of disabled people. She contracted polio in 1949 in Brooklyn, New York and began to use a wheelchair for her mobility. She was denied the right to attend school because she was considered a fire hazard at the age of five. Her parents played a strong role in her, in her fighting for her rights as a child, but Judy soon determined that she, working in collaboration with other disabled people, had to play a, an advocacy role due to continuous discrimination. Judy is now an internationally recognized leader in the disability rights community. Her memoir, authored with Kristen Joyner, of Being Human, Being Human, An Unrepentant Memoir of a Disability Rights Activist. Judy was featured on The Trevor Noah Show. Judy is featured in the movie, in, in the movie Crip Camp, A Disability Revolution. It is a 2020 American Award-winning documentary film, directed by James Lebrecht and Nicole Newman. Noonan Noon, him, I Cannot Speak. It was produced by the Obama... Higher Ground production And is available on Netflix You should all watch it right now I am so excited for you to hear this I can barely speak But oh my goodness Judy is Just fantastic She was A founding member Of the Berkeley Center For Independent Living Which was the, One of the first Grassroots center In the United States And helped to launch The independent living movement Both nationally In the US And globally She has done So many things that me just reading her bio Could be a whole episode But I got to sit down with her And I just sent her a tweet And said I love what it is that you do Would you come on my show And she was like sure Let's talk about it So there's so much that we talk about I, We talk about her experience Growing up with polio We talk about How she feels about disability rights We talk about Her thoughts on the the President-elect Joe Biden, we talk about her experience at Camp Jeanette that was featured in Camp. We talk about so many things. It was a fantastic interview, and one of the reasons I know it was so fantastic was because you don't hear very much from me. I literally go, wow, mm mm-hmm, yep, talk to us more. I, I give her the question, and she has so much to say. She gave me... 45 minutes of her time. We had a really good chat. I really enjoyed sitting down with her. I was nervous the whole time, but I just loved talking with her. She's an icon. She is she's a powerhouse in the disability community, and I was so pleasured to sit down with her, and I, could, I cannot wait to share with you this interview. I was going to wait a few weeks to share it, but I was like, this is really important, and I wanted to... I wanted to share it sooner, so this is my interview with the Judy Human right now on Disability After Dark, the podcast shining a bright light on Disability Stories.
1: Judy Human, hello. Hello, how are you, Andrew? Good, I'm so
0: excited to have you here. It's, this is I am a little bit starstruck right now. So, it's really nice to be sitting now with you.
1: Thank you so much to be sitting with you. Wheelchair to wheelchair. That's right. I that's, should, that's a new name for the podcast. I should call it that. <laughs>
0: um, so, thank you so much for sitting now with me today. You're one of my heroes and somebody that I really look up to in the disability space. And thank I'm just you. really, really excited. to. Be, no problem. I'm really excited to be sitting now with you. Can you. So, for people who maybe aren't super familiar with disability rights and all the stuff you have done, can you introduce yourself to us and share with us a little bit how your disability impacts
1: your life? Sure. Um, so my name is Judy Human. I'm going to be 73 years old this December, and I give my age for a number of reasons. One of them is to really indicate that I've led a life which has really moved from uh, living in the United States. I grew up in Brooklyn to a time when there were no laws in place to protect the rights of disabled people and where people were not really discussing rights as it pertained to disabled people, where discrimination was something that was not really defined. People did not really see disabled children not being able to go to school or being in segregated classes as something that was wrong they just didn't see it that way and I think it was really the parents movement that was at that point really in the in the 40s beginning to put more pressure on uh, schools of education or departments of education uh, to begin to have kids particularly those with more significant disabilities you know people like yourself and myself who um don't walk or don't walk independently and needed crutches and braces and wheelchairs so over the course of my life I had polio in 1949 so basically my whole life I've had a disability i don't remember what it was like not to walk and i've never i don't i don't dream walking i don't um walking is not something that is at all a part of my life. And, you know, over the last number of decades, it's really been um, the creation of a disability rights movement at the local level, state level, national level. And that model has been followed in many countries, like in Canada. And yep. uh, we've not only been able to create a disability rights movement in our respective countries, but also there's now a growing international disability rights movement that is also becoming more and more cross disability and also more racially diverse, religiously diverse, um, including marginalized populations who, who yeah. have disabilities. And I think that's very important. In the United States, you know, we've seen many important pieces of legislation Laws like the Americans with Disabilities Act, um, which people in Canada may have heard of, and um, internationally, we yeah, have
0: we're clamoring we're are clamoring for our own uh, federal law
1: here, waiting for one to happen. We're hoping it'll happen soon. Yeah, I've never got why you haven't been able to do this, but it's a separate discussion. Um, anyway, I think what's important about the work that we've done here in the States. And when you look at the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, in the States, it's really been the ability of diverse populations of disabled people coming together under our own organizations and really being able to strengthen the disability community to recognize that, A, we are experiencing discrimination. B, we need to look at other rights-based movements that have also fought against discrimination and been able not only to get pieces of legislation introduced and passed and have been able to fight for implementation, albeit never as strong as we would like, and also other communities that really have been able to move up the food chain in elected political positions as well as working in corporations and in, uh, government and non um, bringing diversity to many of these groups that still does not really reflect the degree of representation of disabled people, which I think yeah. is still indicative of a whole series of other issues. The Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, I think, really in, uh, in the beginning of, uh, this century was a dramatic effort on the part of disabled people in countries to not only um, be able to forge an international movement that was able to work with uh, representatives from their countries at the United Nations and really be able to explain the fact that the discrimination people were facing was um, deep and yep. it was really um, adversely affecting hundreds of millions of people and that there was a need for this treaty. And when you think that it started really in like 2002, I mean before, but formally I think around 2002, yeah, came into force in 2008. These are all very powerful indicators that w- as a force, we are becoming um, more recognized and are really able to articulate um, not only problems but solutions. So I think, you know, we've seen a lot that we've achieved, but in reality, the degree of discrimination that disabled people face all around the world is still much too significant. And COVID, I think, is really... um, COVID is showing us many things about the weaknesses of our system and mm-hmm. uh, resulting uh, numbers of people who are dying with disabilities, living in nursing homes and other congregate settings. COVID is reminding us of the disparity mm-hmm. we, we've already known is there, just uh-huh. it's
0: shining a big light on that all over again and showing us just how, how deep-rooted the ableism that we experience on a daily basis that we often sweep under our, our own rugs because it's, it's we don't want to think about it all the time but it's showing us how how much it's always there so I I would definitely agree with you there um can you can can you kind of share with us personally for in your day-to-day as Judy Human, how does like how do you how does your disabilities impact you and how do you how how does
1: your what is your disabled day look like my day looks like it starts out where I'm a wheelchair user. I don't walk. I have limited use of my arms and hands, and so I need assistance in um getting bathed, getting going to the bathroom, getting dressed, um you know getting the house in order, helping me make my breakfast um you know dinner. Uh, my husband also has a disability, so I'm very much reliant on. Other people. And in our apartment that we live in in Washington, D.C., we have two people who live with us, and one works mornings and evenings, um, and one day on a weekend. And uh, so they each work one, three days a week, one, four days a week. And then uh, right now I'm working out of my home and have been since about 2017. And I have two people who are working with me, um, dealing with our social media and scheduling and emails, and I have a small company called Judith Human LLC. So a disability uh, pre-COVID also um, meant that I was doing a fair amount of traveling and would have a person, depending on the trip, one or two people uh, traveling with me. And uh, dealing with all the logistics of air travel, ground transportation, hotels. It's so fun, isn't it? It's, it's so great. So, yeah. Yeah, it's
0: such a, it's such a, and I used to travel a lot for my job too, doing talks and speaking, and it's fun. But yeah, I am kind of, I have to say, I am kind of thankful that COVID has allowed for. Me to do what I do. From as much as I love going out there, and meeting the people, and being, you know, kind of a figure in this space, I love also staying home in my sweats and doing it from my doing it from Zoom. So, so COVID has made things a little bit easier for me in some respects. Uh, definitely not
1: in others. For me, you know, I'm a very extroverted person, and I think, you know, looking at COVID, I definitely since March have spoken uh, at many more people uh than I would have if I would have done the travel schedule that was planned. And yeah. so that is valuable. But on the other hand, I don't really get to talk to people on a one-on-one basis and learn more from them. And I think one of the important parts of who I am is I like to meet and talk with other people and learn about what's going on in their life, what they've been trying to do, things that are working that are not working, because that really enables me to have a different and expanded uh, set of knowledge that you don't get on Zoom. At Zoom, you get to give a presentation. People will ask you questions. There could be more than a 1,000 people listening. um, That you'll never see. That I'll never see and never talk to. I don't want to say never, but certainly at the event. Yeah, definitely.
0: Um, I want to shift gears because one of the things that you've done recently that I kind of fell in love with, I mean, all of us in the, dis- in the disability community fell in love with this. You were an instrumental figure in the Netflix film Trip Camp, which chronicled your experiences at a camp for people with disabilities, Camp Jened, and I honestly, i had I didn't know any of this part of the story, so when I saw the film, that first half an hour where it's showing you and Jim and all the people at the camp it was such a powerful moment for me because I went to a camp for kids with disabilities for years and years and that's where I made most of my disabled friends that's where I learned that it was like okay to be disabled and I saw that and I just that first half an hour I swear I, I, I watched those scenes over and over again because it was like wow this was happening before I was Around, Like, it was a really pivotal moment for me, um, and I just loved it so much. Can you share with me a little bit about your experiences
1: as a disabled camper at Camp Jeanette and what that was like for you? Sure, and, you know, I had gone to another camp before uh, Jeanette. I started going to camp when I was at 9, and so I think when I was 9, 10, 11, I went to a camp in New Jersey called Camp Oakhurst that was also a camp for disabled kids. And then I believe the reason I went to Camp Jeanette was uh they had longer sessions, so at Oakhurst, you could only do three week sessions at um Gened, you could do a four week session you could also go for eight weeks so that's I think the reason that I went and um you know i I was talking to uh, a woman uh the other day named uh and Danian, and uh, Damian. And, uh We were talking. She was talking about um, how she's been using social media to reach out and speak with other disabled people who had or have the same form of disability she does, SMA. And I I asked, you know, why do you why do you like these? And she said because it's a safe environment. And I think really, when I think about Camp Booker and Camp Chined. Camp Jeanette even a little bit more because, you know, 12 moving through teenage years, it really was a safe environment, safe in as much as I could be me. My whole self could be present. I didn't feel that I had to be um, something that I wasn't, uh, which, you know, frequently uh, I, even today, You don't really bring your whole self uh, into many spaces because people are not accepting you as your whole self. So that's, I think, one thing about Camp Jeanette and I presume your camp and many others, this ability to come together and feel safe, that you can think and say what you believe and you can... Be working and talking with other people in a way to help. I mean, just speaking in the, in the me, from, for me, being able to be with, um, other campers who were similar in age. Now, in Crip Camp, I was already 21, so I had already started, uh, I graduated college. I'd sued the Board of Education in Brooklyn. I'd gotten my teaching license. And I had started to teach, but I was a camper from like 12 to 17 or 18 years old. And it was during that period of time that I was, as I've been saying, able to meet other disabled individuals of my age where we were all having a combination of being teenagers and also being able to talk about how... Our disabilities, in many ways, were um, – we were not able to participate in our communities the same way our neighbors and friends were um, because of lack of accessibility, lack of accessible buses, lack of accessible trains, attitudes of other people towards us. And yeah. during a camp, we didn't have that. The camps were basically accessible, um, and we – we're participating in camp-related activities, you know, swimming, uh, other kinds of sports, um, arts and crafts and theater and dance, whatever it might be. But we also, because we were sleeping at the camp, had real opportunities to get to form friendships and get to really think about issues that we may have been thinking about during the year but didn't necessarily have an outlet for discussion. So I I see Camp Jeanette and other camps as a real place for, you know, me and you and hundreds and thousands of other people to really be able to solidify more their thinking, our thinking of who we are, who we were and where we want to go. And so really it was a safe environment um, and it allowed us to, you know move forward in creating uh our futures
0: yeah and i mean there's a scene and i I can't remember if you were specifically in the scene that i'm thinking of but there's a scene where i think jim LeBrec and a bunch of other cameras were sitting in a circle just talking about oh yeah sometimes like my mom doesn't let me do this and sometimes i can't do this and it was such such a natural conversation of all the things that disabled people go through in their day to day that you may not have heard I remember watching I watched that scene when I first watched the film I watched that scene about four or five times because I was like oh my god this is my this is (laughs) I did this I do this like it was so unifying because disabled people know when you're with other disabled people this is what we do but we never see it shown back to ourselves so like I just thought it was
1: really powerful I agree I mean I think the um all the scenes at the camp are both serious and funny. Um, the discussions around the table I thought was a great discussion. Um, and I think one of the there were a couple of powerful parts for me. One was the diversity around the table. So Nancy Rosenblum, Steve Hoffman both having cerebral palsy and speech disabilities. And Nancy's being more significant than Steve. And Steve really, Stevie really, you know, like translating Nancy and everybody listening and everybody trying to make sure that what Nancy was saying was being understood. And I think many people have looked at this and the whole film itself and commented on how Unusual it is for people to take time out to make sure people were heard. And I think that's really, you know, one of the powerful parts of the disability rights movement when we really are becoming inclusive. Um, We have to be respectful and listen and learn from other people who may not you know, speak the same way some of us do.
0: Yeah, and I, I remember that scene where Nancy's talking, I and, and I had trouble understanding her, but when it was translated by the group and I listened back to it four or five times, I was like, oh, no, I get it now. And I think when you're around disabled people with speech impairments and different things, you it's like an accent. You pick it up really quickly. I have friends who have really heavy speech impediments as part of their disability, and I can know exactly what they're saying, and I think to see that on film, to see that in a film about disability was so important.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, I agree.
0: Um, I wanted also to ask you, you were a key figure in the 504 sit-in. For listeners who may be listening, and it's like, well, what is what was that? What is this? And if they're just coming to terms with learning about disability rights. Could you give us a quick overview of what that was and explain why it was important?
1: So, in the 1970s, in the United States, we began to see more legislation uh, being introduced and passed that was specifically dealing with rights. And in 1972, a law that we have called the Rehabilitation Act, which has been around since 1919 and uh, provides support for disabled individuals um, who are not working and are wishing to work. So it can cover people coming out of high school to people who are acquiring disabilities over the course of their life and need uh, to receive education and or training and or assistance in getting a job. So this law was moving forward, and in 1972, the revision of the um, Mm -hmm. amendments included something called Title V. Title V in the Rehabilitation Act um, includes a number of uh, provisions of law that make it illegal or have affirmative action requirements. Um, around disability and one of the provisions is section 504 and section 504 uh, and it's modeled after the U.S. Civil Rights Act of 1964. Section 504 says if you are an entity receiving money from the federal government you may not discriminate based on disability and um, it's a very like 42 words and uh, at first President Nixon vetoed the legislation and um, he vetoed the legislation twice and finally we were able to get the legislation signed. Now, again, there were numerous demonstrations. Uh, if you watch Crip Camp, you'll see that there was a demonstration in New York on Madison Avenue where a group of 50 people were able to shut down the city uh, that was around Nixon vetoing this law that had Section 504 in it. So in the United States, when a law is passed, it's frequently necessary to put together something called regulations, and those regulations explain what the law is and what the obligations are and who those obligations are directed towards. So here it was very clear any entity getting money from the federal government. So that included universities and public schools and hospitals and government, on and on. And but the regulations were taking time to develop because the law itself was so short, so limited that there needed to be ways of explaining things like who was a person with a disability, uh, what was an a you know, what kinds of accommodations would need to be required in order for um, a person to be able to have access. Uh, would the um, all the buildings that were being built and had been built with federal money, would they have to become accessible overnight? So there were many, many different things that had to be addressed. And that process started in 1973. And uh, there were representatives from one of our federal agencies, Health and Human Services, who were traveling around the country talking to disabled people and others learning about the kinds of discrimination people were facing and looking at how to develop a set of regulations that could make Section 504 um, meaningful. And in 1975, an organization was formed called the American Coalition of Citizens with Disabilities. And one of the reasons ACCD was formed as the first cross-disability national organization was to fight to get 504 implemented and other provisions of law and to be able to provide technical assistance for disabled people in the U.S., etc. cetera. Um, so 1975, ACCD is formed. 1976, we have a presidential election, uh, Gerald Ford, the Republican loses, and Jimmy Carter, the Democrat, wins. And in, uh, Gerald Ford had refused to sign the regulations. Now the regulations, as I mentioned, they started to be worked on in 1993, I'm sorry, 1973, and by 1970, Five, they were really ready to be signed into, into application. But Ford refused to do it. Carter said that he would get them signed. And, uh, many of us had worked on the Carter campaign. He took office in January of 1977. The lead or the minister for health and human services, which was the agency that had to sign these regulations um, decided that he was not going to automatically sign these regulations, that he was going to put them through a review. Uh, Because remember, President Ford refused to sign them because he said it was going to be too much, too burdensome. Um, And and Califano, who was the secretary, was going to do a review. And we in ACCD... And around the country, were very concerned about what that review could result in. And so, basically, what happened? I, I think it's important to get this background information to understand that the disability community has been very involved in the development of the regulations. Um, the draft regulations had been sent out for comment. Many, 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 many people around the United States and organizations submitted comments on the proposed regulations. And we were very concerned that Califano was going to weaken the regulations. So in February of 1977, we had had a board meeting of ACCD. Uh, a motion was introduced that if the regulations were not signed by a certain date in April, that there would be demonstrations in all the, all the uh, federal regional offices for HHS. So I, I think probably like in Canada, you know, we have a federal um, agency, Black Health and Human Services, and we have regional offices, and those regional offices have responsibility to ensure that the responsibilities are implemented. So um, we declared, I think it was April 4th, that there would be demonstrations in nine or ten cities. And in the Bay Area, where I was living at that time, Berkeley, San Francisco, uh, we had formed a committee. And that committee was working on preparing for the demonstration that would be held on April 4th. And we um, had been working over the years with other organizations, not disability-only organizations, we and the Center for Independent Living in San Francisco and others. And so we were basically putting together a coalition of disability rights groups and other civil and human rights organizations. So when we had this rally on April 4th, we had also planned uh, to have a meeting with the regional director, which they had agreed to, and we had a very large crowd of people at the rally, and we went in the building at the end of the rally for our meeting. When we got to our meeting, um, it turned out that the regional director knew nothing about the 504 proposed regulations. Nothing, nothing at all. And you can see this in the movie where we're so frustrated that he didn't know anything about uh, these regulations. And there had been a committee that had been working with his staff to uh, prepare for this meeting. And that's really what happened when we saw that he nor his staff um, understood what we were talking about. We decided that we were going to stay at least one night. And then the people in Washington, D.C., from ACCD, were denied any food and were denied medication. And so they left. And we decided that we were going to definitely stay in our building because we were not in a situation of adversity. The mayor of the city supported what we were, were doing Ed Roberts at this point had gone to the state of – um, to run a federal agency or state federal agency in California, and he was very supportive. And other agencies uh, in California were sending, like, mattresses down to let people sleep on the floor more comfortably, and that was after the first day. But when Washington was starved out, we decided that we had to stay. And so it wound up being like a 27-day sit-in, which is the longest in the history of a federal building in the United States. And simultaneously, a few weeks into the demonstration, a group of us went from California to Washington, D.C., and some other disabled people from ACCD came to Washington, D.C., and we held meetings in the White House and had demonstrations outside of the president's church and outside of the White House. And the end of the day was the regulations were signed as we wanted. So it was a very people need to read Crip Camp and ideally also read my book, Being Human, um, in order to really get a much more solid understanding. Crip Camp is great because, you know, you see it. There's great footage in the film. But the bottom line is these regulations meant so much to disabled people, and they really were the precursor to our Americans with Disabilities Act, which didn't come about until 1990.
0: That's right. Um, There's so much. I wish we had so much more time. There's so many more things I want to ask you about. But I also want to ask you very quickly, those events of the 504 sit-in, were parodied recently by Drunk History, and um, you were portrayed by Ali, Ali Stroker. Uh huh. Um, and I, I just, I remember seeing that, and I remember seeing that come on my social media feed, and I was like, "This is incredible!" Like, I, I heard about it five, five, or, five or six days before it was released. The whole disability community was freaking out because we'd never seen something like this properly parodied. What were your thoughts on that when you
1: saw that come down? Well, I thought it was great. And Candace Cable, who I really got them to do this piece. Um, her sister works in costumes for Drunk History. Unfortunately, it's going off the air. But I think Drunk History itself is has been a very good show because it highlights three pieces of history um, every week. And so the week that um, the segment on 504 was on was also accompanied by a piece on suffragettes and a piece on a high school student who a uh, black student who integrated and led the or led the walkout in Selma, Alabama based on discrimination against black students. So mm-hmm. you had the suffragette, the Civil Rights Movement and the Disability Movement in one 30-minute piece, which was great. Um, they had, I don't know, 800,000 or so people who watched it, and I think for most people, they knew nothing about um, any of the issues that um, were illustrated in that piece, and Ali, um I hadn't met Allie Stoker, so it showed on a Tuesday, and I was in New York and I met Ali Stripper the next night for dinner. And uh, we had a great time. We went to a place called Juniors, which is a very famous restaurant in New York City where you can get all kinds of New York food. And, um, she's a wonderful woman. And then, you know, she went on to perform in a musical called Oklahoma and she got an award her performance and when my book was coming out and we were doing um, an audio audition, I contacted her to see if she'd be willing to read the book because it just seemed so appropriate um for A, it had to be a disabled person and B, yeah. I really wanted it to be Allie because she had played me in Drunk History.
0: Yeah, I mean that that I just remember seeing that and being like wow, this is amazing because not only was Ali there they had, like, key disability figures from today playing disability figures
1: from the past. And I was like, this is, this is, like, this is
0: so cool. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think
1: what Drunk History was able to do was clearly find very good disabled people who could play disability roles. And uh, a real example of what the industry needs to be doing.
0: Definitely. Um, I know we're a bit short on time, so I'm going to pick my next... Couple questions really quickly. Um, I want to ask you Are you, as somebody who's worked in the State Department in the Obama administration, are you excited about Biden's win right now? How do you feel about this, like, past, current past election cycle that just went
1: and happened? I'm very excited, um, that Biden is going to be our next president and that Kamala Harris is going to be our next vice president. I have not been a supporter of our current president. I think he um, has adversely affected our country overall, and certainly in the area of disability has mocked disabled individuals and there is really nothing that his administration can speak to as far as playing a leadership role in helping to advance anything so um uh president elect Biden and Kamala Harris both have records of support that they've given in the area of disability. And, you know, President Obama had, you know, over the course of his uh, two, uh, two terms, six disabled individuals who had worked in the White House in prominent positions. So I know that uh, President-elect Biden will continue to work on the heels of what President Obama and President Clinton had done um, Clinton was the first one to bring a disabled advisor into the White House and to appoint um, at one point I was looking at about 40 disabled people that were in the Clinton administration and at least that number or more in the Obama administration in key positions across government. So, you know, the disability, a huge percentage of the disability community did in fact support um President-elect Biden, uh, and continue to and are working on transition. And it is our expectation that although the new uh, administration is going to have significant problems because of how poorly the current administration has been operating uh, with COVID and the high number of uh, people contracting COVID and dying from it, um, as well as, you know, the current administration's goal of really destroying the role of federal government. So there's a lot of work that's going to have to be done. But they're both definitely ready to do it, and people are really ready to work with them.
0: Fantastic. And I don't I, I don't think you're alone in admonishing the current administration the way that I don't think – like from sitting here in Canada where we don't have – the trash fire that you have over there (laughs) like we're watching going oh, oh wow this is oh like like believe me Canada has its own things to work on and our government has a disability but (laughs) like when we when he you know when when President-elect Biden won the other day and and in his speech said talked about trans people talked about disabled people I was like this is a big Turning moment. So I, as an American living in Canada, because I'm an American, I, I was very, I was quite proud to to see the tides changing. Do you have dual citizenship? I do. Yes. Uh, where did you grow up? I grew up well, I grew up in I grew up in Toronto. I was born in California.
1: Okay. uh, where? uh
0: Laguna. Okay. So okay. I haven't been. I haven't been back to Laguna in a, in, since I was a little boy, but when things start getting better, who knows? I might be down there more. Okay. Um, there's so many more things I want to ask you, but I don't want to, I, don't, I don't want to keep you from your day. So the last thing I'll ask you, as as somebody who is a pioneer in the disability space and somebody who has done so many amazing things to move the needle forward for disabled people, and like I said at the beginning, Somebody that I admire so much. What piece of advice, Judy, would you give to the next generation of disabled people out there who who want to take the next steps and who want to who want to be the next generation of disabled leaders? What what advice would you give for them now?
1: First of all, I think we have to look at how we define the next generation. Typically, when we think about the next generation, we think about the next group of people being born, and absolutely. Um, Uh, children, uh, teenagers, young adults, adults are a part of the next generation. I also want to say that a substantial number of the people who have disabilities in our countries around the world acquire their disabilities as they get older. So what I believe is very important is that we are working also towards an intergenerational disability rights movement which right now I think we really don't have. What we do have, yeah. and I think is very exciting, um, is really the uh, growth and development of uh, younger disabled individuals who have, in in some countries, benefited from better education, uh, laws that are in place that are making it illegal to discriminate in a multitude of areas, um, that are allowing people to go to schools in more integrated settings and be able to be qualified to apply for jobs. Um, one of the other very important things that we're seeing uh, in our country, your country, and countries around the world is also much more attention being paid to accessibility. And in the United States and I've, I haven't been to Canada in a number of years, but um, Come visit me. I'll uh, put you, <laughs> I'll put you up here. Depends on the province, but anyway, um, in the United States, we have federal rules on accessibility that every state has to comply with, and these standards are basically the floor. They're administered by the U.S. Access Board, and uh, which is an advisory committee composed fifty percent, fifty one percent of government agencies that have standards authority and uh, 50% uh, civil society. And um, the reason I mention this issue of accessibility is because one of the last times I was in Canada, I was kind of amazed that each province has its own rules on accessibility unless something has changed. Nothing has changed. It's still the same. So I think that's – in the U.S. now, you can feel assured that if you want to take a bus in New York or you want to take a bus in Missouri or in Chicago or uh, Texas or Georgia or Florida, those buses will have to be accessible. If there are train systems that are being built and being built since 1990, uh, they have to be accessible. Modifications have to be accessible. New buildings have to be accessible. Modifications have to be accessible. Um, things like sign language and um, uh, captioning and services to the blind, other kinds of support are required by law. And whereas they may not always be being done the way they should, you have a right to complain and actions can be taken against government. Um, as well as the uh, private sector. So I think that is a very important issue here, that basic accessibility is there. Areas that we're needing to do a lot more work on, having to do with technology, the Internet, accessibility of websites, a lot of work has not been done there as it needs to. Government has not been doing what it needs to be doing Um many of us feel very strongly about this and hopefully um, the Biden administration will be addressing some of these issues. So I want to say to young people and older people who have disabilities regardless of what they are and when they're acquiring them is look around you. Look at what you want as an individual. Look at whether or not you're working with other organizations and other groups of people. Look at the changes that need to be made in your community. And also, I think, very important is to look at issues around media. How is the media portraying disabled people um, in journalism, uh, in social media, in advertising, in films, in documentaries, in television programs? We all can play a role. And uh, speaking up and out when things are not being done the way we want them to be done, I, you know. I'm working with a group in California called the uh, it's the Disability Rights Education and Defense Fund, and they have a project there called the Disability Media Alliance Project, and DMAP. And DMAP is working on uh, in starting out in the area of journalism. And uh, working with disabled individuals and organizations focusing on uh, journalism and diversity uh, to really get more of the voices of disabled journalists into the yeah. various rooms so that uh, the stories that are being told can be inclusive of disabled people, can be authentic of disabled people. So my message, work harder expand your movement, our movement, um, allow people to uh, recognize that they are experiencing discrimination, that that is wrong, that there are laws or need to be more laws to address that, and that we have to work together across disability, which includes racial diversity, religious diversity, etc., in order to make the changes we want. And intergenerational issues is pivotal.
0: Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time today, Judy. It was so, first of all, it was so great to hear this from you and be able to talk to you. It's such a pleasure. How can, really quickly, how can the people listening, how can they get a hold of you? How can they follow your work? How can they support you?
1: And you can put this up, but we have a, a YouTube channel called The Human Perspective, uh, which is where we post um, interviews that I do with people a couple times a month. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And then look at Crip Camp and the book. Fantastic, thank you so much Judy. Really appreciate your time today. Shut off the recording then. Um, do you have my bio and Andrew? Yes, I do. So if you look. All
0: right, that was another episode of Disability After Dark, the podcast shining a bright light on disability stories, a part of the Wheels on the Ground Network. I'm really, really happy you came to this one. If you want to follow my work, you can head over to www.drewgerza.com and you can follow me on all my socials at, at Drew Gerza. So Instagram and Twitter at Drew Gerza. You can also follow the podcast at Dark Pod on Twitter. Remember, if you want to be a part of the show, you can email us at disabilityafterdark. At gmail.com, tell us a little bit about your story, tell us a little bit about why you want to be on the show, and we'd love to have you. The show is, again, no longer just a sex and disability podcast. We want to talk to you about everything. So drop us a line. We'd absolutely love to hear from you. Remember, if you want to support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash disabilityafterdark and pledge as little as $1 a month or as much as $5 a month or more to keep a bright light shining on these stories. I'm your host, Drew Gerza, your disabled daddy. Thank you so much for listening to this Wheels on the Ground production. And um, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening. Bye. Copyright notice. Disability After Dark was presented, created, and produced by Andrew Gerza and Wheels on the Ground Productions with music by Music by Space Robot Scientist. Any and all materials, including graphics, audio recordings, and music, are property of the owner and cannot be used or distributed without express permission. Copyright 2020.